It says, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples who heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned, seeing them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to be translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day, and it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak, followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when he looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And Father, we ask that you would help us to see greater things perhaps than we've ever seen before, maybe even in this passage of Scripture this morning. Maybe we've read it before, Lord. Maybe we've studied it before, but we believe that you're a living God and that at times you have a word in season that you want to speak to us. And Lord, your word is inspired. It's alive. And so we pray this morning you would give life to it, make it powerful. Make it speak to us. We pray that you would prepare us and you know what that means mentally, spiritually. Lord, in every way, give us a tender, receptive, responsive heart to what you would say to us and give us an ear to hear. We ask your spirit now would teach us and speak to us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, what truly defines a successful life? I think that if you probably asked some people, well, quite honestly, probably a lot of people in the world that question, you might get answers like, how many followers do you have on Instagram? Uh, That seems to be a big thing nowadays. I'm not a, a social media guy, perhaps myself, but, you know, my wife and daughters and many others are involved, and I know that's one of the things there. You know, you have the, how many followers do you have and how many people? are you following kind of a thing but I think if you ask God what defines a successful life he would probably say something like finding and following Jesus finding and following Jesus and then helping other people to do exactly the same 
helping other people to find Jesus and helping other people to keep following Jesus. And let's just be very real at the front of our study this morning. And I think this passage speaks to us about these things. There are a lot of different avenues whereby people ultimately arrive at that destination of finding and following Jesus. But despite the root, that vital destination is what God desires all people to come to, that each person would meet Jesus in a personal way, that they have a personal encounter with Jesus, and then they would choose as a result of that to then become a follower of Jesus. That once they meet him and they're exposed to him, that they would make that choice to follow Jesus with their own life. And that as followers of Jesus, we would seek to then help other people to come to know Jesus, to meet Jesus. We'd introduce people to Jesus and to help them follow Jesus. Now, the background of our setting this morning as we continue in this first chapter, we've been following the powerful ministry of this man, John the Baptist, who's been conducting a water baptism there at the Jordan River. John's been preaching to people, telling them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The idea is to turn around from the way you have been living and to turn the right direction to, to in a sense, turn away from a life of sin and a self-governed lifestyle and to, to turn and to prepare themselves. And John has been telling people to get ready because the Messiah was coming. The Christ, the Christos, this Savior that God promised was about to come was on his way soon. And as Jesus himself, remember, we talked about came even for participation in that particular water baptism that John was conducting at that time in Israel. It was really a time that water baptism of Jesus for his public revelation to Israel that he was indeed who he was the Messiah, the very Son of God there in human flesh. And as a result of experiencing Jesus' water baptism as John was conducting it, and the heavens opened and the Spirit descended upon Jesus, and he heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It was at that point, remember, John himself became thoroughly convinced without a shadow of a doubt, and John said, I tell you the truth, I testify, this is the Son of God. And from that point on, John then, it seems whenever he saw Jesus, would make proclamations like we saw there in verse 29 last week when he saw Jesus the very next day. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the final Lamb that would be sacrificed for sin, that would remove sin once for all, the very Son of God and the Savior. And that was John's entire ministry to focus on seeking to prepare people to recognize Jesus as the Son of God and as the Savior and to do what he could as a man to help people receive and embrace Jesus themselves. Well, pick up with me in verse 35. We now go on from that point. It says, and again, the next day... John stood with two of his disciples who had been learners and disciples of him in his ministry and looking at Jesus, verse 36, as he saw him again walking by, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. I don't know, did he say that every time he saw Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, every time he saw the Lord, we find him again saying this. And the two disciples heard him speak, saying that about Jesus, and they, it says, verse 37, followed Jesus. So, again, once the baptism of Jesus happened, at that point, the public ministry of Jesus Christ, which was only about three and a half years, sort of was initiated at that point. At his water baptism, he was authenticated. In a sense, he was anointed spiritually for that public ministry he then began. And, and 
at this point, we now begin to see in our text people beginning to actually start following Jesus now. We begin to read about this going forward. And note the intention and the ultimate fruit of John's ministry was basically to get people to follow Jesus. John wasn't interested, if you would, in gaining a following. John was interested in causing a following. Causing people to follow Jesus, not gaining members of his discipleship group, but causing people to just follow Jesus. That was his heart. And here we read in our text that these two unnamed men, disciples or learners of John the Baptist, some think this is John the gospel writer himself referring to himself as well as Andrew who we read about next as our account goes on but two men who respected John they were learning from John the Baptist but they were looking for the Messiah and because of that no doubt I believe the Holy Spirit is already at work in their lives drawing and calling them and John happens to look and to see Jesus going by and when he sees Jesus going by He instantly, again, draws attention to Jesus. We read there in verse 36, looking at Jesus as he walked by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Again, look, pay attention. John's saying again there, look to him, look at him. This is the Lamb of God who will remove sin. And take notice, all John did was make that simple statement that we have recorded there in the text to identify Jesus and to encourage people to look to him. And the Bible tells us right here, verse 37, that they heard John speak and they followed Jesus. Uh, They just hear John speak this very simple thing about Jesus and their hearts are stirred and they left John and they became followers of Jesus. Now I look at that and I think, wow, that's what you call hearts that are spiritually prepared by God. And that's what you call apparently someone who is speaking under the unction and the anointing of the Spirit of God in such a way whereby those two things working in conjunction a prepared heart spiritually and a spiritually anointed person who's speaking in that moment, you notice there it doesn't seem to take a whole lot of convincing. Their hearts were prepared. They were ready to receive Christ and the Spirit moved them to act and it says they followed Jesus. That is, they literally walked after him. In a literal sense, they followed him. But more than that, it seems that they turned their allegiance now over to Jesus rather than being just a disciple of John the Baptist. Now, take note, this is one way people come to Christ. We see many ways in this account we're studying this morning. In this situation, it was the preaching, you could say, of John the Baptist that God used to bring these men to a place of faith and decision to follow Jesus. John, who was certainly used by that Lord in that by the Lord in that way, was someone who spoke under the Spirit's anointing, and, and and he stood up, he publicly spoke and proclaimed information that was accurate about Jesus Christ, and then he called people, if you would, in a responsive way to look to him and to put their faith in him, and because their hearts were prepared, they heard what is said and they responded to Jesus as a result. And let me just say, that is how some people find Jesus. That's how some people are going to find Jesus, through faithful preaching. They may sit in an evangelistic crusade. They may be in a church service. They may hear somebody stand up and uh, you know, uh, preach in, in some setting, whatever form or fashion, and they hear the word of God spoken. Their hearts are prepared, and they respond. Now, let me just say, I don't think in America, we're very blessed. I don't think in America we lack occasions 
to hear people preach. Not in this country. But what I think perhaps maybe what we do lack in the United States of America is people praying that hearts would be receptive and that hearts would be responsive to what the Spirit of God is saying and doing. Preaching's dime a dozen in this country. We have freedom to speak so freely. I think you can hear preaching, whether it's on the radio, tell I me. Mean, we don't lack for more preaching, but I think what we may lack is for hearts that are prepared by people praying and interceding and, and the Holy Spirit moving in hearts whereby like this situation here, John the Baptist just makes one statement and their hearts are so prepared spiritually, they just respond and they become followers of Jesus. That indeed I think is an area where we as Christians need to be sensitive to. Lord, wow, that's amazing. Prepare hearts to be more sensitive spiritually that they wouldn't resist when they hear the word of God proclaimed or when they have the gospel preached to them. Well, look as we go on here, verse 38, it says, Then Jesus turned, seeing them now starting to follow. He said to them, What do you seek? So as Jesus notices these two men now beginning to follow him, he turns and he inquires of them regarding why it is that they're now pursuing him and, and what they're in essence seeking after or looking for in following him. In one sense, you could say Jesus is he's sort of searching out their intentions or their motives for exactly why it is that they've now made this decision to start following him. And so he says to them, what is it that you seek? Now, I think that's probably a very relevant question that Jesus may ask to all people even to this day still. Whether you just want to say maybe generally in life, overall and currently, I think that's a good searching question. In life generally, what do you seek? What are you seeking for? What are you seeking after? Take inventory. I think it's good to take inventory once in a while and to look at your life just as an individual this morning and to ask yourself, looking at priority, what's the primary thing that you seek for? Some people, it's validation. The primary thing they're seeking for is they always need somehow to be validated or some people it's acceptance. Some people it's a relationship. They can't be alone. They, they always have to have a relationship or some people it's approval. Some people are seeking after success and the feeling of success. Some people it's, it's money. You know, it's been asked before, those who are wealthy and some, you know, how much is enough? Just a little bit more, you know? <laughs> And, and some people are seeking after wealth. Some people are seeking after pleasure. Some people are seeking after, you know, enjoyment or notoriety. I mean, it's, some people are seeking after, a, you know, a, a higher education. And, and what is the thing that you seek? You know, the nicer house, the new improvement, the better car. What is it that you seek? Listen, God would say, Psalm 105.4, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. That is the best thing that we should be seeking. That is what these two individuals demonstrate here. They're seeking Jesus. And I think for all of us as Christians this morning, certainly if you are already claiming to be a follower of Jesus, that's a proper question for Jesus to ask me as his follower whenever he wants to. For Jesus to say to me as his follower, Tony, well, I see you're following me, but what do you follow me for? To just get what you want? Am I your cosmic genie? Are you following me just to try and get a better life? Are you following me because you think if you follow me, then you can... And look, let's be very honest. There are a lot of different motives and reasons 
that some people choose to follow Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I'll follow you because then maybe I'll finally get a wife. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons. Very, you, know, I'll, I'll, and you look at the television and some of the Christian programs. Some follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you can name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, and you can have whatever you want. I'll follow Jesus. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus. What do I got to do? And, and and people follow Jesus supposedly for a lot of different reasons, and I think it's good sometimes that it's okay that Jesus say, uh, "What are you seeking? What are you following me for?" What really is it that you're after in your life? And though we all profess to be his followers, sometimes even as those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus, sometimes we're actually starting to follow paths to seek after other things. And we say we're a follower of Jesus, but sometimes that's not our chief pursuit. And therefore Colossians says to us in chapter 3, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Again, if we're Christians and followers of Jesus, the first thing we should seek is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to let Jesus ask us once in a while, hey, didn't you say you're my follower? If you're my follower, shouldn't you be seeking me and my kingdom foremost in your life? It seems to me you say you're my follower, but you follow that or you follow Instagram, or you, know, you follow all that way more than you follow me. What are you seeking? We should be seeking Jesus and seeking eternal and spiritual things as followers of Christ. So they then answer him, verse 38, going on and said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, teacher, where are you staying? So they come with a quick answer indicating they want to come and be with him where he is. Verse 39 goes on, it says, and Jesus said to them, look what he said, come and See, some of your translations render to that, that Jesus said, come and you will see. The idea here, again, Jesus invites them to come and see for themselves. Certainly, Jesus, I think, meant that literally uh, in response to their basic question. Yet, perhaps, Jesus, who always cares more about the heart than anything else, maybe in some ways he actually certainly perhaps meant a little bit more deeply as well. And he graciously invites them as he sees them now coming after him and following him. And basically, maybe he's asking even something a little more deeply. Hey, uh, I see you're coming after me. Uh, why don't you come and see for yourself? Come and see. They're saying, Lord, this, that. Well, come and see for yourself. And I think that is always the heart of Jesus because he never changes toward all people that the heart of Jesus towards people is those two things. Come and see for yourself. Come and see. Jesus wants people to come to him, certainly in salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. This morning, if your soul is weighed down on the inside and you don't know what it is that just does not still seem right in your life and you're carrying around something, let me help you. It's called guilt. Because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And whether you are five years old or you're 15 years old or you're 50 or you're 75 years old, that is the most heavy weight in the world to carry inside of your life. Look, well, they're only five years old, but they're guilty of things already. And they may not be able to articulate it, but they know guilt. They're 15 years old. They're 12 years old. There's guilt. And that guilt makes a, a unrest in the human soul where the Bible says, there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. 
God created it that way. So there would this constantly be this agitation. Lord, I need rest inside. Something's not right with me. And listen, the only way to make that right is you have to come to Jesus yourself. You have to come to Jesus. Oh, my dad, my mom, they, they, they come to Jesus. I just kind of ride in the back seat with them. No, you have to come to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your own sin, understanding your need of him to save you, and Jesus will give you that salvation and rest for your soul as you put your faith in him and ask him to become your Savior and your Lord. So Jesus wants us to come to him, and then he wants us to continue to come to him in an ongoing relationship. And Jesus wants us not just to come, but as it says, come and see. See what? See more about him. Come and see for yourself. If you're not sure if you want to follow Jesus, well, that's okay. Come and see for yourself. Find out who Jesus is for yourself. Don't take somebody else's word for it. You come and see who Jesus is for yourself. Make sure. Count the cost. Do you really want to follow this or do you want to follow Jesus? Come see for yourself. And if you're a Christian, continue to come to Jesus because as you keep coming to him, you'll keep seeing more and more about him. And he'll keep revealing more of who he is to you. I think the order is the key there as well. You must first come to Jesus, then you will see more. It always works that way. Well, if I see something, then I'll, you know, if, I, if God shows me something. <laughs> the Bible says when you believe, then you see. People want to say, show me something, then I'll believe. Israel saw tons of miracles. Their biggest problem was unbelief. Seeing things doesn't always convey you're going to believe. When you believe, then the doors open. Jesus is going to say in John chapter 3, you will, you no know, one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, once you believe and you're born again, then the doors of your eyesight will open spiritually and you'll begin to see. So come, see Jesus invites. Verse 39, it says, and they came and saw where he was staying. And I love that little statement there. They remained with him that day. And it was about the 10th hour. So these men decided, notice, not just to follow Jesus and pursue him initially and then pull back and, and go back their own way and turn around and go back. But instead, we read there, they came and saw, but then, I have it underlined, they remained with him. They stayed together with Jesus. They dwelt where Jesus was. They abided together with Jesus. You could say they, they came to Jesus but they then continued on with Jesus. They made that initial commitment to come and follow, but they remained with Jesus and they didn't walk away and go back to where they were before. And let me just say, by way of application for us, what a really beautiful picture because that's what God desires. Yes, God desires us to come to Jesus initially, to make an initial commitment, to follow Jesus, but just as much God wants people to remain with Jesus and to continue with Jesus, and to keep walking with Jesus, and to stay with Jesus. And the tragedy that probably breaks God's heart is sadly, not all people remain with Jesus. There are people who come to Jesus and they start to follow Jesus, but for some various reason, whatever it may be, there are many, at some point, they turn away. And they don't follow Jesus anymore. And they don't continue with Jesus anymore. In John chapter 6, we're going to read there when Jesus begins to say some challenging things. It says this in John 6, from that time, many of, listen, his disciples went back and they walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? 
And Simon answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and also we've come to believe and know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. A searching question to ask ourselves this morning, what camp are we going to fall into regarding being a disciple and a follower of Jesus? Are we going to be a deserter? Or are we going to be a dedicated follower of Jesus who says, I came to him, but I will purpose in my heart not to continue with him. And challenges may come to my faith and difficulties and things I don't understand, but none of that alters. He's the son of God. He's the only forgiveness for my sins. He's the only hope of eternal life. And though none go with me, still I will follow the cross before me, the world behind me, and to say, Lord, I will continue to walk with you. I think we have to guard against that temptation. It will come in your Christian life. Occasions, opportunities, you know, sinful backslidings, different things, life tragedies, challenges that will tempt you and will test you. And Jesus wants us to not just come, but to remain with him, to continue on. Acts chapter 11 tells when the people in Antioch began to get saved, that it says that Barnabas went there because a great many turned to the Lord and Barnabas showed up and he celebrated with them, but then he encouraged them with purpose of heart to continue with the Lord. That's important that we not just come, but that we remain and we continue with the Lord as well. Verse 40 says, And one of the two who had heard John speak that day and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So who we know is the Apostle Peter. Uh, Andrew was one of those first two that followed him that day. Verse 41 says, And he, Andrew, first found his own brother, Simon, who we know is Peter, of course. And he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So notice, after Andrew's personal decision to become a follower of Jesus, his, if you would, first act as a new believer, it seems, is to go and find his brother, Simon Peter, who we know, and to bring him to meet Jesus. So Andrew's excited and enthusiastic of his own discovery and experience with the Lord. And it's almost as if he can't contain the excitement as well as the burden and concern he now has for his own brother, who does not yet know Jesus. So Andrew, it says, naturally and rather enthusiastically goes and he starts to testify to his own brother, his own relative, hey, we found him. We found the Christ. We found the Messiah, the promised Savior that God predicted. It's true. It's real, man. We found the Messiah. We found the Savior. And he says, you've got to come meet him yourself. I'm telling you, it's true. I found him. You got to come meet him. And that's why we read here in verse 42, what a great statement. And he brought him to Jesus. He went and got his brother and he brought his brother to Jesus. Interesting. Three times you find Andrew showing up in the gospel of John. And every time he shows up in the gospel of John, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. He's a neat guy. Here we see him bringing his brother to Jesus John 6, he brings a young boy to meet Jesus. And in John 12, he brings a group of Greek people to come meet Jesus. There was something about this man, Andrew. He seemed to just be a personal evangelist from the Lord. He just seemed to have a heart for and an ability from God to bring people to Jesus. And would you take note? He has no public platform or ministry. It's not from a pulpit ministry that he's bringing people to Jesus. How's it happening? Through conversation through personal relationship and connecting with people. 
Maybe he had an ability to be very social and, and someone who could connect with people well. And because of that, through relationships and conversations and very informal relational ways as he interacted with people, he just had this knack for and burden to just keep bringing people to Jesus. And he did it one by one and God used it. And it worked. And can I just say this morning by way of reminder, what a great example because that's probably actually how most people, I'm going to danger to say, authentically come to Jesus Christ. Because look, there are times, let's be very honest, where people may come forward at a church service or come forward at a crusade, but was there a genuine conversion and will they continue to walk with the Lord and follow the Lord and will there be discipleship? And, and again, I'm not diminishing that. I know God uses that as we said at the beginning with John the Baptist who was preaching ministry and when he got saved. But a lot of times I see people who genuinely authentically come to Christ. It's because somebody they know and they've developed a relationship with who's praying for them and talking to them and there's a level of credibility and trust and they can answer questions and really help them understand is the one who then one by one brings somebody to Jesus. And there's something valuable because it's through a relationship. And again, maybe they invite them to a Bible study or invite them to a church service or they just lead them in a prayer of commitment. But that one-on-one -on -one evangelism like Andrew of bringing someone to Jesus. And again, keep in mind, who was this he brought? Peter, the apostle Peter. Listen, I think that's a great reminder. Peter came to Jesus because one man cared about a soul and he brought him to Jesus and consider the end result who was Peter? an apostle a New Testament writer a rock a leader in the early New Testament church remember this is how some people come to follow Jesus it may not always be in a church service what if each one of us took the example of Andrew as a personal challenge to say Lord okay what's my Andrew mission for 2016? What's one person that I could bring to Jesus? I think it's a great reminder and challenge for all of us. Verse 42 goes on to say that now when Jesus looked at Simon Peter, as Andrew brought him to meet him, he said to him, you are Simon, son of Jodah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone or a rock, the idea there is. So notice that Jesus meets Simon Peter now, and when he meets him, you can see there he intimately knows him already he speaks to peter in a way where he speaks of his own heart and his future it says jesus looked at him the language there when you look at it actually uh, in the greek actually means to gaze into deeply to look beyond the surface the idea the indication here is that jesus as you can tell by what he says is looking down below into the heart and soul of peter and in fact the obvious thing here is he saw the potential of peter down the road he saw who Peter would become. He knew the power of God that would work in his life long term. And Jesus, upon meeting Peter, does what? He takes a look at him and he changes his name there. He says, you are Simon, but you shall be called Cephas. Now, name changes always indicate life change. We see this in the Bible. Abram goes to Abraham. Jacob, conniver, goes to Israel, which means governed by God. It spoke of the life change that he would experience. That's true just generally as well. Typically, a new name speaks of a life change. My wife used to be Trisha Mae Lackey, and then she married me and became Trisha Mae Montemuro, and it was a life change. I assure you that. It was a good life change, though. You want amen? No, I'm saying <laughs> It was a good life change. An adoption, right? You adopt a child. 
They get a new name. That's a life change. Somebody changes their identity. Why are they doing it? They want a, a new life change. So name changes speak of life changes. And here we see that Jesus changes Simon's name to Cephas. And I think it's a good reminder to us what Jesus wants for all of us. Jesus wants to change lives. Jesus wants to change your life. He wants to change you from who you were to who he wants you to be and who he knows that you can become. He knows what you were. Oh, I'm just like this. I've, well, look, I understand. I, perhaps I've said this before, but I'll probably say it many times from the pulpit again. God didn't save you to keep you like you are. Oh, this is just the way that I am. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but it's just the way that I am. Look, well, God didn't save you to keep you how you are. He saved you to change you, to make you a different person in Christ. Part of that means making you recognize your new identity, that you're not who you once were. You're new in Christ. You're to be a new person now with a new walk and a new way of life that's supernatural and different and life-changing. And look, how encouraging to know this too. Like with Peter, Jesus sees your potential spiritually. His name Cephas was the Aramaic term that he receives. Your name is Simon, it shall become Cephas. That's Aramaic for rock or stone. Peter, as we know him, is just the Greek equivalent to Cephas. But Jesus was, was calling Peter here a stone or a rock because he was speaking somewhat prophetically of the potential that he saw in this man's life that he was going to become a strong, stable, solid man. And that wasn't who Peter was naturally. Remember, Peter was up, down, foot in the mouth, you know, walking on the water, sinking in the water. But through God's work in Peter's life, Jesus saw his potential and what he could be and what he would ultimately become. And so Jesus spoke that forth. Despite who he naturally was, Jesus saw what this man would become. And let me say this morning, and please hear me, every one of you, Jesus sees the potential in your life nobody else may see the potential in your life I can't promise you that but I tell you this Jesus sees the potential in your life and he knows exactly what you are he knows exactly what you were and he knows what you still are this morning but he knows what he can make you become and he sees the fullness of the potential of the power of God working in your life and he's on your team and he's the biggest cheerleader saying I know I know what you're going to become. I see the rock that you can become when I begin to work in your life and with him in your life and you following him, Jesus sees that great potential. We go on verse 43 saying, the following day Jesus then wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And when he found Philip, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, we're told, was from the area of Bethsaida, which is the same city of Andrew and Peter. So the next man who becomes a follower of Jesus in our account here, notice, is not brought to Jesus through human instrumentation, somebody bringing them. But here we see this man comes to Jesus by Jesus pursuing him directly by himself. Philip didn't become a follower through human person bringing him to Christ. Philip became a follower of Jesus because Jesus went directly to him and revealed himself to him in a very direct and personal way. It says, Jesus found him and said to him, follow me. You know, that always intrigues me. All many times Jesus needed to do was just say those two simple, very direct words. You read the gospel, you notice that once in a while. That at times, that clear invite to become a follower of Jesus is what changed many people's lives. 
the power and the authority that came forth from the voice of Jesus speaking directly to individuals would compel people to get up and to leave everything behind. Things that mattered to so many people, whether it was a prior life or you know, a, a comfortable situation, that Jesus would just say, follow me. And there was something so powerful and authentic when people would hear the voice of Jesus speak to them that they would be compelled and they'd just leave everything and they'd follow him. And I'll tell you, is it not true? Some of us have experienced it, I hope. There is something very powerful when you have heard the voice of Jesus speak directly to you. And you know in your heart that Jesus has spoken. It can be life-changing. It is life-changing. I shouldn't say it can be. When you hear Jesus speak to you and you respond properly. And this phrase was many times what Jesus would use when he would call people to become followers. He would just say, follow me. A lot of times Jesus didn't say, believe me. He would say, follow me. And I just want to say this morning, I think that indicates what Jesus desires and defines what Jesus expects, that we would believe what is right about ourselves as sinful, depraved people, and we would so sincerely believe in who Jesus is and what he needs to do for us and what he can do for us, that we would so sincerely believe those things that we would act upon them by responding rightly to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Lord of Lords. And that we would then act upon that by submitting our lives over to Jesus' Lordship and following Him instead of following what we want. That we would have that dramatic experience. Again, follow me. Look at those words. Follow me. That does not just mean make a one-time decision to kind of join the, the Jesus Club. Yeah, I did that. Well, one time when that guy prayed that prayer, I, I made. The, yeah, I did that thing. I did the follow me thing. Yeah, he prayed that prayer, and I, I, I did it. I made the one-time decision. No, oh, I went forward to the church. Listen, it means to choose a way of life. To follow me means that wherever Jesus goes, I keep following Jesus. I choose a new way of life whereby I don't follow what I want anymore. I don't rule my life. I don't do what I want. It means that I pursue that path daily to keep following Jesus. Jesus said of discipleship in Luke chapter 9, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And I want to challenge us this morning. Look, that's what Jesus desires. That's what he inspects. That we wouldn't just make a trivial one-time prayer, but that we would follow him as a way of life and continue to follow Jesus, letting him be in charge and rule over our lives following his path. Well, after Philip encounters Jesus and decides to follow him, verse 45 says, he then went and found Nathanael. You see the pattern? And he said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he shares his own testimony and authentically says, hey, this is the one. The Old Testament prophets spoke of him. Moses spoke of him. He's fulfilling the prophecies. We found the Messiah. And he says, it's this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, look what happens. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So as Philip, or excuse me, Nathaniel, hears about this testimony, all he seems to hear is the hometown location of Jesus. And at that point, 
When he hears where Jesus comes from, he stumbles and that perplexes him. He hears, we found the Messiah that God's predicted to send. And he's shocked to hear it's Jesus of Nazareth. So he, and I no doubt think very sarcastically says, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth? I mean, Jerusalem, I mean, yeah, but Nazareth? Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, must not have had the greatest reputation as a city or a community. Some commentators say that it was a remote and rural area. That the idea is that it was a, sort of a very insignificant location. Other commentators say that it was quite an immoral area. It was kind of what you'd say, a, you know, a rough city or maybe somewhere that's an ungodly community. Either case, it had quite a stigma. And quite a bad reputation where the mind of Nathaniel stumbled over the possibility that God's Messiah, the Savior, or anything at all good could possibly come out of Nazareth. Yet the reality was, ding dong, the best thing in the world came out of Nazareth. The Son of God and the Savior was actually raised in that very unlikely place. Now let me say by way of application, listen, be careful of letting logic and human reasoning or preconceived ideas or prejudices that you have for whatever reasons make you miss at times what God is doing because it seems unlikely to you. Be careful of that. Sometimes God works in unlikely ways. He's God. He's kind of got the right to do that. Be careful. We can carry prejudices or preconceived ideas about things and we think this is how God works, this is how God should work. I mean, God may work in an unlikely way. Don't miss what God's doing sometimes because it's just kind of unlikely. It may be God and he's just working in an unlikely way. I would say secondly this, be careful of also thinking that God could not possibly bring something good out of maybe a lowly beginning or a lowly circumstance. I mean, how could, I mean, how could anything good out of that circumstance come? This has such a lowly beginning. It's so humble. It's so meager. I mean, it's basically failed before it ever got off the ground. How can anything good come out of that? And we can be like that sometimes. Listen, God can make beauty from ashes. The Bible says don't despise the day of small things. God can do what God... And be careful as well thinking that maybe because an environment or a community or something like that is marked by immorality or whatever, that nothing good could come out of it. Let me say by way of an example... Look, some people have some attitudes towards Atlantic City right here in our local area. Oh, God, this is disgusting. I hope it just drops in the bottom of the ocean. Listen. How do you know what good might come out of there? What if the next Billy Graham comes from one of those kids that we spend time with on Friday nights sharing the gospel with? And as we love them and miss them, yes, but who are we to say nothing good? I mean, because, I mean, this is a horrible community. Listen. Jesus came out of Nazareth. We have to be careful of these kind of things. We need to recognize sometimes those are the areas God cares about the most. And I'm not esteeming that that's somehow more glamorous than ministering in a community. Because look, from what I've seen, you, you know, you have people in certain communities and cities that are, you know, or they just, they're wicked and they know they're wicked. And then you have very white-collar refined sinners. You know, we were just, we're, we're very well to do and we're just, we're refined, selfish, sinful pigs. You know, it's just, truth, I mean, it's, it's, and we just need to be careful that we don't have these stigmas and prejudices, but that we realize that Jesus cares about people and we never know. 
And let me just say this as well before we move on. Remember that Jesus' upbringing, and maybe this is for one of you this morning, remember Jesus' upbringing and environment, it did not define and it did not deter what his destiny was. And I don't care what your upbringing was, and I'm sorry for some of you, maybe the upbringing you had, and maybe it wasn't the greatest in whatever way, but it does not have to define your destiny. It does not. And don't believe that and don't allow that to happen. It's same is true for Jesus, same is true for you because Jesus is in your life. It can be different. Verse 46 goes on to say, Philip said to him, hey, well, I'm not going to argue with you, but he knows, look, just come and see for yourself, he says. He doesn't dispute. He just says, if you'll see Jesus, trust me, you have the same experience we did, he's thinking. So verse 47 says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So before officially meeting, notice these individuals having any relationship, Jesus already knows everything about Nathanael, just like with Peter. And he speaks to Nathanael and reveals part of his life. He commends him for being someone who was not a deceitful man. The idea is he wasn't a hypocrite. Jesus knew this about Nathanael, that he wasn't necessarily a perfect man, but he wasn't someone who lived deceitfully. He didn't cover up publicly who he really was. He was just an authentic man. He was genuine. He didn't put on a mask to hide who he really was. And because many people, quite honestly, struggle with this area, were very quickly deceitful and hypocritical, you know, Jesus was pretty impressed when he found somebody who wasn't like that. So he says, wow, behold, somebody... This is a man who, who doesn't tend to outwardly hide and pretend before people. He's just an authentic man. Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, said, before Philip called you, when I saw you under the fig tree, I saw you. So Philip shocked how Jesus could know him so well, how Jesus could even know who he is. They'd never met. It was kind of unsettling. And Jesus informs him he was aware of details in his life and saw everything about him, even where he was before they'd ever even met. And that kind of staggered him a, bit, a little bit that he realized Jesus knew him that well. But truth be told, that's true of every person regarding Jesus. Even before we know Jesus, Jesus knows everything about us and he's got full detailed surveillance on every one of our lives. What trees we were hanging out under, what things we were doing, who we really are. And that's quite a sobering reality to grasp. But I would say this, yet Jesus loves us all. Think about that. Jesus got full surveillance, but he loves us. And who better to let help you and rule over and lead your life than somebody who knows you that well, that knows you better than anyone else. Well, verse 49 says, Nathanael answered and said to him when this all happened, he was quite shocked. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So as Nathanael sees this happening here at that moment, I mean, his mind, I mean, imagine just someone telling you things about yourself that there's no way humanly that they could possibly know. And he's so shocked that it's at that moment why he knew that he says, you're the son of God. You're this king of Israel we've been waiting for. And his skepticism is instantly erased from his mind that he had before. And sometimes when people are skeptical, I think sometimes Jesus may work in ways like this where, look, Jesus isn't intimidated by skeptics. Oh, my wife, she's such a skeptic. She'll never come to Christ. My husband, he's such a skeptic. He'll never come to Christ. Listen, Jesus can deal with this kind of stuff. Amen. Jesus is more than able to work in such a way where he can work so powerfully like he did in that moment with Nathaniel where he blows somebody's mind of the reality of who he is 
where he can in a moment, when the time is right, bring them to a place where every doubt is removed, every excuse is obliterated, and everything that was a preconceived idea is taken away and they come to the realization of who Jesus really is. Verse 50 says, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? He says, you will see greater things than these. In other words, Jesus basically says, Nathaniel, you haven't seen nothing yet. Keep reading the Gospel of John. <laughs> you haven't seen anything yet. I haven't even started doing miracles yet. You believe because I told you this, you're going to see much greater things than this. Maybe the Lord has shown and done some things in your life that have left you amazed. Maybe Jesus would say to you this morning, look, you're going to see a lot greater things than this. You wait to see what I'm going to do in your life as you continue to follow me. Verse 51, we then conclude Jesus' final statement. Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Jesus reveals himself, look at our verse, as the connecting ladder between heaven and earth. Jesus basically there shows that as the Son of God and the Son of Man, he is the bridge, therefore, between God and man. He's the connecting ladder or bridge between heaven and earth, and everything that happens between the earthly dimension and the spiritual dimension transpires through the Lordship of Jesus. Now, it is possible Jesus used that illustration of himself being this ladder connecting from earth to heaven with supernatural activity happening on it because maybe Nathaniel was thinking about, as he sat under that fig tree, Genesis chapter 28. And the dream that Jacob had, you can go there and read it, where Jacob, the patriarch, had a dream, and as he dreamed, it says, Behold, a ladder was set up on earth, and its top reached to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And then God speaks to Jacob about his future and Jacob wakes up and he says, wow, behold, the Lord was in this place and I, I didn't even realize and he senses the presence of God. And maybe Nathaniel under that tree was reading Genesis chapter 28 and is it just another way Jesus wanted to blow his mind when he revealed himself? He said, what? He thinks I saw him under the tree? Wait till I tell him this about myself. That little ladder there Jacob had a dream about and the angels, angelic activity and spiritual activity, everything was happening through that ladder. He says, guess what? I'm that ladder. I'm that ladder. Probably just blew his mind. Whoa, you knew what I was reading in the Bible too? And basically Jesus here says, Nathaniel, I'm the ladder whereby all spiritual activity happens through. Everything happens under my rulership and direction, the angels and activity. And anyone who wants access into heaven must come through me. They must come through me. Hey, this morning, may we leave with this encouragement. As followers of Jesus, let's be challenged to try and find ways, and there are many, to help bring people to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never become a follower of Jesus, no, listen, that's all he wants from you. It's a lot. He doesn't want your money. He wants you to follow him to follow him with your life. Shall we pray together? Let's stand.